This is Beyond Busy. I'm Graham Alcott. I'm the author of a number of books, including the global bestseller, How to Be a Productivity Ninja. And I'm the founder of Think Productive. We work with some of the world's leading companies to help people get stuff done, but more importantly, to help people to make space for what matters. Beyond Busy is where I explore the often messy truths and contradictory relationships around topics like work-life balance, happiness and success, and explore with interesting people what makes them tick. In short, this is where we ask the bigger questions about work. My guest today is James Reed. James is the chairman of Reed, Britain's biggest and best-known recruitment brand, and the largest family-owned recruitment company in the world. James is the author of the book Why You? 101 Interview Questions You'll Never Fear Again. He's also the author of The Seven Second CV and Put Your Mindset to Work. In this episode, we talk about managing such a multifaceted business as Reed and Reed's early adoption in the dot-com era, the importance of finding the right boss and great people to work with. And we also talk about the fateful 15, James's list of the key questions to prepare for when you're going for a job. This is James Reed. I'm with James Reed. How are you? Hello, Graham. Yeah, I'm very well, thank you. So you're, uh, we're going to talk about your book uh, in, in a few moments as well. So let's start with an interview question. Um, can you tell me a little bit about yourself? Yeah, that's a good question. And it's the first <laughs> question in the book because, and it's the first question in the book because it's the most common question that people are asked at an interview. And that's why we put it number one. And it's a, it's a good question because it's a, it's a wide open field, isn't it? Tell me about yourself. Sure. Um, to tell you, I could tell you anything, couldn't I? Really? <laughs> <laughs> but I suppose what I'd like you to know about me um, is that I'm a, a family man, a business person, um, and that I have um, an interest, a great interest in people. And I, I'm also running a charity called The Big Give, which does campaigning to raise funds for thousands of charities. And I like writing and reading books. Yeah. And you're a prolific writer. So we're going to talk about Why You, um, which is a book all about job interviews. Um, what was, what's, the, what's been your motivation to write books? Obviously, you've got a really successful business. Um, you know, you're well known. You do talks in the media and, and so on. So um, where, does the, where does the sort of motivation come to also alongside of that write books? Because I know writing books is really hard, right? Yeah, it's also fun, and, and, and I think it's a good way of collecting your thoughts. So, I mean, I run a recruitment business, Reed, and I've been doing that for 25 years plus. So I, I've seen a lot of people going through the process of applying for jobs, doing interviews, either being successful or being disappointed. And a lot of people ask me for advice, uh, you know, when they, when they or their now, as I get older, their kids are going for job interviews, you know, can you help? Yeah. And, and And I thought, we as an organization have an incredible amount of knowledge that we can put to work to help people really. And it was all in the heads of our consultants and, 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 and directors. And, and I thought it would be good to capture that. And, yeah. and that's why, um, that's why the, the book that we've just reissued a new edition is, is why you 101 interview questions you'll never fear again. Yeah. And it's got my name on it, but you know, really it's a crowdsourced effort because what we did, yeah is we surveyed our clients, you know, employers who hire people through us, and we asked them, what's your favourite interview question? And we got hundreds and hundreds of questions back, 
and they ranged from tell me about yourself to some pretty peculiar questions. And, and we put the most common and the most interesting in the book. Yeah. And the next thing we did is we talked to the team. You know, how should someone think about answering these questions? So we workshopped the questions and we got a lot of good thinking, a lot of good heads together to come up with the ways of responding to those questions. So that was really the basis of, of, of this particular book, which I collated, I suppose, really, and then wrote, um, because it, it, it has the input of a lot of people. And if you look at the acknowledgments, there are pages of them, the yeah. acknowledgement of people who contributed to it. And, and I think it's a richer book for that because um, it has a huge range of ideas and observations and people seem to like it. My favourite review, there are some rude ones, there always are with books. <laughs> my favourite review is three, three letter words, got the job. And oh. So that's, that's why we did it. Yeah. And I read somewhere about you, um, I think you said something like, our mission's really simple, it's to help people to get jobs and then thrive at work. But it was just like, just had this, it had this real sense for me of a very clear mission in the work you do right like you you kind of live and breathe what you do yeah well a little while ago a a sort of leading business person asked me a question over lunch and he said um does your family have a purpose and i thought well can i get back to you on that (laughs) (laughs) kind of put me on the spot And, and i thought it's a really interesting and it's a good question and um we've sort of been thinking about that quite a lot since and The purpose for our business, Reed, which is a family business, is improving lives through work. So that's what what we're about. And I really like it because it is simple and it's something that each one of us can do each day we come to work because it's all about our interactions with other people, the service that we provide and the ideas that we have. So that's our focus. And so we want to invest in and develop companies and initiatives that improve people's lives through the work that we do. And by its nature, it's a it's a people based customer service business, right? So you're bringing people through the doors in terms of uh, you know trying to get them placed into workplaces. But all of your individual consultants and, and recruiters are all having to. The only way to do that work is is you know face to face talking to people and, and relating to people. Yeah, we we work with people. I like to say one person at a time. So, yeah, it's a, it's a, it's a, we have to say, tailor our services to the individuals we work with. And, and um, it's also very important that, you know, we're able to develop those relationships over time with our clients because they have to trust us to find them the right people. You know, especially if you're supplying temporary staff to a company, you know, we decide who's going to go and work in their business. So we have to have a good understanding of them and what their requirements are. And we have to have a good understanding of the candidates who come to us and what they're looking for. And we, we hopefully match them together in a way that works for them both. Yeah. And before we talk a bit more about the book, so just tell us more about the scale of that in terms of, you know, how many jobs per year? Like what 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 does the business operation of Reed um, look like these days? Well, the sort of front door to Reed, if you're looking for a job, is our website, reed.co.uk. Um, that, that has... Well, before the pandemic, it had a quarter of a million jobs advertised at any one time. Wow. That took a bit of a hammering with the pandemic, but now we're back up to about 180,000 live jobs yeah. at any one time, and the number is going up, which is encouraging. So so that's um, our principal job site. We also work um, with the government on helping people who have been made un- unemployed back into work. And so we have a business called Reading Partnership that works um, – 
to help people back into work. And we place thousands of people every year who've been unemployed, become unemployed, back into jobs, which I find very rewarding. And uh, that's an important part of our work. And and then we have our recruitment agency business, which would would give temporary work to over 100,000 people every year. So, yeah, we've built this business up over 60 years. And our strategy is to build it organically, so that like a tree from the ground up. So yeah. I say to people, the only two ways you can grow a business organically, one, one is through service, good service, so people come back, and the other is through ideas, good ideas, so you can come up with new service. Mm. So that's yeah. our focus. Yeah, that's really interesting, ha- having started my business from scratch and grown it organically, and it's obviously much smaller than yours, but... Um... But yeah, that's a really interesting perspective, that whole thing of ideas and service. Yeah, that makes a lot of sense. Well, I, we, we tried buying a business once or twice and we, did, we weren't very good at it. It's <laughs> <So laughs> not <it's> organic. <laughs> and yeah. the great thing is if you do build a business organically, if you, if you hit on a good idea, um, it keeps coming around and, and, and you can build a culture that's unique and you, you yeah. hopefully feel happy with. So yeah, yeah, I recommend you stick with organic growth. Great. Yeah, thank you. I yeah, I I agree with that in terms of culture, and also for me, I've always sort of resisted the idea of as I'm growing the business, sort of resisted the temptation to just get in loads of debt to try and grow it aggressively because it feels like well, I'm my own boss now, and if I started to grow it through debt, I presumably uh, you know develop bosses pretty quickly, right? <laughs> like in terms of people that have. Um, a stake in in how I work and how quickly we grow and all those kind of those kind of questions. Yeah, I mean, I suppose we're quite conservative financially. We we like to grow our business from cash flow, so yeah, we have to make money yeah. to reinvest it. Yeah. yeah. So let's talk about some of the questions. So um, one of the things that you say in the book is that you got all these hundreds of questions, but they really boil down into this kind of fifteen different types of questions that um, people are asked in interviews, right? Well, yeah, we call them the fateful 15. In fact, there are 15 questions. The first one is, tell me about yourself. That if, if you prepare those 15, and they're the first 15 in the book, you're pretty well placed for any interview, really, because yeah. most of the other questions are sort of variants of those 15. And I think that's quite a helpful way of thinking about it, because you, an interview can be a pretty daunting prospect. Yeah. And, and where do you start in terms of preparing for one? But you can you can go through these fifteen questions in an evening and start sort of thinking about yeah. what answers you want to give, uh, and um, I think that's a good starting point. Do you want to pick out two or three of the fifteen that you feel like people get wrong or are difficult? And yeah, flash the book up so that we can. Yeah, uh, I, have it. I mean, here's the book, and I'm just going to have a look at it now. The, 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 yeah, so the classic interview questions, the fateful fifteen. Well, tell me about yourself. I wasn't prepared for you to answer me that question. I could have given you a better answer if I had been. Right. <laughs> I, should have been. <laughs> I should have seen that one coming. Um, and then and there are some other ones like, what are your greatest weaknesses? You know, it's kind of a cliche being asked that question, but it's quite important to have given it some thought. You know, if you start yeah. saying things like chocolate, people are going to get annoyed. Yeah. So, right. so you know, I think it's, and, and I was, I would say with that, you know, weaknesses are often the other side of a, a strength. You know, so yeah. one of my weaknesses is I'm an impatient person. I, I can be 
headstrong and impatient and, and compulsive or whatever. And, and that, but that can be a strength because you get things done and you can, you, you, you're intolerant of things that aren't satisfactory. And that sort of yeah. So, so, um, and then the, yeah, where do you see yourself in five years time? I think that, that that's quite interesting because it shows that you've thought about and considered your future and what your ambitions are. And, and, and you know, because often, you know, often the, the, the kind of standard, um, not necessarily the way to answer the question, but the thing that a lot of people would be thinking in their head about where do you see yourself in five years time is usually in the seat of one of the people who's on the panel, right? It's like, I want to come here and work hard and hopefully get to where you are in your job if you're on that, you know, classic career ladder. So how do you, how do you resist saying that kind of thing? Cause that's well, obviously you could say, threatening yeah, in an interview. You want to try and say that in a non-threatening way. Yeah. So you say, well, I, well, I'd hope that, you know, I'd be successful in this interview and that I, I'll, I'll join your organization and, and have secured some promotions and pay rises because I've been doing a good job of making a yeah. contribution yeah. perhaps, you know, that's one sort of answer. Yeah. Um, I mean, if someone says they want to be doing something totally different, I, I once interviewed an accountant and, and, and he's, he, his principal ambition when I asked him that question was to be retired working in his garden. <laughs> it didn't really bother me because he, I, I thought, well, he, he can retire in five years' time if that's his goal. And he was yeah. an excellent accountant. He was very diligent in terms of our um, payroll, et cetera. And so it worked out fine. But it, mm. it was a pretty, pretty risky answer from his point of view. Yeah. Didn't show, didn't show a lot of dedication to the job that he might be doing. But in a um, way, sometimes that's clearer, isn't it? Because there's also always the pretense when you go for a job that um, there's this this pretense that that employee relationship is going to go on forever. And of course, very few employee relationships do. But that's the facade that everybody has to to keep up, isn't it? You know, well, when no, you, when no, in, in no employee relationships go on forever. So. So, yeah, I mean, there's a sort of expectation. I suppose I say to graduate trainees who join our business that, you know, I want a three-year commitment from you. Yeah. So we're putting you through this program. Um, you're going to get the opportunity to work in three different roles. You're going to have a mentor. We'll invest in further learning, et cetera. And, and three years, they can sort of understand because it's about a typical degree time, isn't it, when you're going to Yeah, work. right. But, and I say that to them because I say, you know, if you don't honour that, you're taking a place away from someone who might have done but beyond that, I say, you know, we'd be delighted if you stay here and we have a successful relationship for going forward. But it doesn't matter if you don't. You know, we hope that yeah. you have a good career somewhere else. So, you know, there are sort of reasonable expectations. I think, you know, any senior job, you know, you should be there for at least two years. I'm yeah, sure. yeah. I mean, otherwise, it starts looking bad on your CV. Yeah. And you don't want to be a person with lots of different jobs at a certain stage in your career, because people start asking questions about, you know, how well you've done in your previous roles. Yeah. So, absolutely. you know, you want to manage your career a little bit in that respect. So here's go on, give us a couple one. of the other ones. Yeah, here's another one. Um, how do you deal with stress and failure? So mm-hmm. um, that's an interesting one. Uh, not very well in my case. <laughs> so, <laughs> <laughs> so, uh, I think, uh, well, I suppose... Can I ask you that question then? So how no, do you no, deal with question. stress? No, how do you deal with stress and failure? Well, yeah, I mean, you try and, and learn from it, don't you? I think failure can be very, a very important teacher. Yeah. And, and we, I, and, and I fail a lot, actually, thinking about it. You know, we try things all the time, and more of them fail than succeed. 
But I remember my father saying something to me years ago. He said, you know, being an entrepreneur or being in business, it's different to going to the casino. You know, if you put if you put money on red on the roulette wheel and it comes up in the casino, it comes up once. But if you have a good idea and you get it up and running, it come, keeps coming around. So yeah. I, I, I hold on to that thought because it suggests that you should keep trying. And that if you do, and when you do back a winner, it's, it really is a winner. So you know we keep trying, and and I've had lots of you know we've opened in other countries and not succeeded, and we had a we had a database business back in the nineteen nineties that we lost quite a bit of money on, and then and then soon after that we started our website. So we tried again. Mm. The website turned out to be not that different, but sufficiently different to be a big success. Yeah. So we learned from the, the the failures, and I think you have to keep doing that. Stress is difficult, I, I, and I, I think the way I've learned to deal with that is by making sure I have lots of exercise. You know, yeah. if you can get out and sort of or get up in the morning, go to the gym, or run, or walk, or I think getting out in the fresh air is very important if you're if you're doing a desk-based type of job, which can be stressful. And, and you know, I think it's. It, it's pretty obvious in a way, but it's often difficult. To, you have to organize your time. Yeah. So I sort of convinced myself that my time <laughs> is between six and eight in the morning so that I can get up and train or do whatever. And because no one's going to be disturbing me then. Okay. And instead of thinking, oh my God, I've got to get up at six o'clock, I try and convince myself that that's an exciting opportunity to do something, <laughs> even when it's dark and cold outside, for, for myself, because I know that. I'm not going to be getting any business calls then. Um, yeah. Family aren't going to be asking me to go anywhere then. And I can make that my time. And, you know, as, as um, the CEO and chairman of the company, I mean, presumably if you decided that your time was 12 till two, um, you could make it so that no one bothers you at that time. So is that about um, convenience? Is there a bit of guilt there about being away? Like I, I kind of think about it myself. Like I often, um, I'll use kind of six to eight in the morning as my sort of main writing time. And I think largely for me, that's about the guilt of it not being the main nine to five in some way. So I can kind of pigeonhole it. And I don't know, like it, it feels like we're very conditioned around nine to five. What do you think? Yeah, I think there's something in that. I, but I suppose I, I have done afternoon time as well sometimes. And yeah. it depends what, but I think what, you, what you've, it's, it's sort of the convenience as well, because I think, opportunities arise in the daytime that you don't want to necessarily say no to. So, you know, I'd book two hours, 12 till two to do that. And someone said, I'd I'd like to meet you for lunch or I'd like to do a podcast with you or whatever it is. Uh, And uh, and I was interested in that opportunity. I I wouldn't want to miss it for that. Yeah. So I think, you know, it's so important to be adaptable and flexible as well, isn't it? So I I would throw out the guilt if I was you, Graham, and and embrace flexibility and, and just sort of make it your time. Early, so, early that suits you yeah it's so funny I've just um because we just finished doing our first 100 episodes of this podcast and um part of the celebration of that was then doing like a, a compilation series where we went back and and sort of looked at some of the highlight conversations and highlight episodes and stuff and it was amazing how many of them did uh kind of root back into guilt one way or another it just seems like um the way that we tell ourselves stories is often um you know can be really limiting in lots of different different ways in terms of how we structure stuff and how we think about work-life balance and those kind of things yeah i i i, I don't know I, I don't know where that comes from i suppose 
I feel I feel myself an obligation to sort of hopefully you know deliver to, to other people and not let people down. Yeah. Yeah, and, and and you know if you're if you're running a business or you have responsibilities, I suppose that's pretty common, and you'd mm. feel bad if you did let people down, and you that would make you feel guilty, I suppose. So you don't want to do that, yeah. And, and you want to give the best that you can of whatever it is uh, to whatever it is that you're doing, but it's probably yeah deeply seated, isn't it? That yeah, for sure. Um, let's do one more of the of your fateful fifteen. So is there another one that you can pick out that um. You think people? I'll give you number fifteen. With... We've had number one. Um, hmm. Number fifteen is show me your creativity. Oh, so that's a nice one. And and I think ideas are, are sort of important in um, business more now than ever. Yeah, and in life, really. And, and and I often ask people, you know, tell me about the last good idea that you've had. That's another mm-hmm. question in the book. So you know, it comes out of that creativity theme. And they look sort of often they look to look a bit sort of perplexed. Is, does it have to be work related? No, it doesn't. You know, it could be you know what you watched on Netflix that you found incredibly entertaining, or it could be something that you somewhere you decided to go on holiday, or yeah, you, you gave your granny a call and you hadn't done so for too long, or whatever. It, you know, you, we have ideas all the time, and it's sort of trying to build on the thought that we should have an idea a day at least. That was something I was taught a long time ago. You know, look to have an idea every day. Yeah, it doesn't matter really what it is, but try and think afresh, try and be creative, and 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 it's quite enriching, and, mm. and it also encourages curiosity, which I think is so important. Yeah, do you have any sort of processes within the business, or is there any way that you kind of set the culture within the business to to help people to be creative or to to think differently? Well, we always ask for ideas, and we've and we've got a long standing scheme called read think where people can submit ideas and they get rewarded financially for them okay it's a bit, it's a bit crude and simple but you know if we like the idea and we think we might apply it we, we write them a check and it yeah. goes to payroll and the biggest check we've ever written is a hundred thousand pounds which was a few years ago now but it was an idea around opening up our website yeah to, to advertisers for free and i and i think um you know last year was our 60th anniversary year in business and we had a whole program where we were encouraging people to submit ideas called 60 60 60 and we paid out every month and mm. it, and it, we got a lot of good ideas and i think it's really important in business that that we seek to continuously improve in what we do yeah and that, that can only happen if you have ideas from everyone really you know right across the uh, organization because um, you know, the management don't know what's going on in every detail, in every office, in every interaction. So, you know, it's the people who are working there who, who can say, well, why the hell are they doing it like this? It's yeah. Improved. yeah. And I really want to encourage that that sort of spirit. So, you know, it's it, it's important that people come up with ideas. And, 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 and I like to make it known that that's kind of expected of you if you work in the mm. organisation. I used to love that. We had a similar thing at HSBC, which was like my first job out of school I did a gap year there to sort of save up some money for university and it was like a check processing center and I remember just being so excited by like the ideas box and just walking around the the you know the sort of office floor and just writing down all these ideas I did get paid for a couple as well but uh, I was probably a bit of a it's probably a bit of a nightmare to the management just submitting all these ideas all the time but there you I go. think it's good <laughs> and, and yes yeah, you have to curate the ideas yeah. you? the manager of, uh, 
in business. But yeah, I've had so many good ideas, and and we've improved our company no end because of mm. them. And so I, I I often think as well that it's the new people like you in that job at HSBC who who have the freshest view. Yeah, because you can easily get into the habit of doing things, and you know they say, well, why do you do it like that? Have you thought of doing it differently? For and sure. I think, so I really welcome ideas, particularly from new people. Yeah. They see it fresh. Yeah, they're not so entrenched in how it's already done and in the culture and all that. They sometimes have that sort of benefit of the fresh pair of eyes. That's yeah. right. Um, your, your, that story there about the, the person who um, said, why don't you put your competitors' uh, jobs on your job site? So at the time, that was a really controversial thing to do right but were you the first to do that because that was a really successful yeah uh, decision well, we were so we went we went online very early in the 90s because one of the teams suggested it uh, and he, i remember him saying to me i sure he still works in the company he's been with us more than 30 years he said to me james i think we should have a website and I remember my answer was, what's that? <laughs> that how, how long ago it was. Yeah. Uh, you know, so it was one of those conversations, someone having an idea. And, and so we decided to start exploring that. And, and then later, another colleague had this idea of opening it up. And he called it free recruitment so that anyone could post jobs on the website for mm. free. And it was very controversial because it, 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 I said, what do you mean, our competitors? And he said, yes. You mean our customers? And he said, yes. Um, and uh, he eventually persuaded us that it was a really good idea because it, it was before the services had really been established. And by doing that, we, we successfully captured the market because everyone started putting their jobs and opportunities on for free. Yeah. And, 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 you know, it was like a snowball effect. As it rolled down the hill, it got bigger and bigger. So, you know, a crowd attracts a crowd. There's more jobs, more visitors. Mm, and, um, yeah. That was how it began. And it was only, you know, several years later that we started charging. But, uh, but you know, that was the basis for what became a good business. Yeah, wow. Um, and you, your career, I mean, you've had some really interesting um, early experiences before you joined the family business. So I wanted... I wanted to ask you, the curiosity um, couldn't leave out asking you about levelling graves in Old Windsor. What was that like? Uh, yeah, <laughs> so uh, um, that was my sort of first job when I was 17 after leaving school. And it was in the winter. And, and a friend of mine told me about it. He, he said that someone had recently been fired from this, this job. Uh, and uh, he, he told me about it. And it was actually quite well paid. But it was it was it was very hard work because the ground was frozen hard, right? And you were on your own a lot of the day, and you were in this cold, often foggy environment. And I remember one, surrounded by graves as well, which must be yeah, odd. Yeah. And I remember one day there was this, uh, I could see this figure coming through the cemetery towards me, and it was a an old woman, and, and she came sort of through the graves and came up to me and said, "Oh, hello, how are you?" And I said, "Yeah, I'm fine, thanks. How are you?" And he said, "Good." And he said, "She said, do you like working here?" And I said, "Oh, yeah, I do." And he said, "What?" Well, she said, "At least it's not lonely." And then wandered off into the fog. <laughs> <laughs> and I mean, I, she was either a comedian or a ghost. I haven't. Heard <laughs> but, uh, I do remember the conversation quite vividly. So yeah, it was lonely, it was cold, and it was hard. So it made me think quite seriously about what I wanted to do the rest of my life. Yeah. And then you got a job working with uh, Gordon and Damon Eater Roddick as well. Um, yes. Yeah, yeah. I wrote to them. Yeah. So I wrote to Anita Roddick when I finished my studies and said I, I wanted to work for an entrepreneur. 
and I, because I wanted to learn uh, about you know, what it took to be an entrepreneur, really. And it was really interesting. She rang me up. At, this was in the days before mobile phones. She rang me up at home on a Saturday morning and uh, basically asked me for an interview on the following Monday, which I said I'd obviously go to. And at the interview, she just said, we need someone to do this, this and this effectively. You know, are you interested? And I said, definitely. <laughs> when can you start? And I said, now. And that was pretty much how it wow. went. So it was like a sort of dream interview. I didn't get all these challenging questions and, and, and uh you didn't need your book then no, no. so uh, so it was um it was it was fantastic working for her and her husband gordon and the company was really in its infancy then i mean she was such a huge change maker in business and you yeah. know, a lot of what she sort of introduced back in the 80s is now mainstream and um and and, and i learned so much from her but what i really liked about her she had great vision and energy, but she also had great attention to detail. So if mm. someone, something wasn't displayed properly or organized properly, and, you know, when you counted up the till at the end of the day, it obviously had to be spot on. And if it wasn't, you had to do it again until it was. And I, I think that I, I really admired that. I, I thought she yeah. ran a great business. And what, was, what did the body shop look like when you joined? Was it, was it just one shop or, you know, where was it in its kind of yeah, well, I went, rise? I went for that conversation with her. It was in a little warehouse in a, a town called Rustington in Sussex, which okay. is Brighton, where she's from. And they had basically, they had a sort of warehouse on the ground floor where all the goods shipped out to probably, probably about a dozen, maybe 20 shops at that time. Right. And, and then they had the offices above. So it was a very, you know, everyone knew each other. It was very sort of small and, and, and family feel to it. But it was really going places. She'd, she'd just won Businesswoman of the Year. They were yeah, in right. shops. It was setting the agenda, you know, and sort of fair trade and not testing products on animals. And, you know, mm. there was a lot of interest in what she was doing. And, um, you know, it grew very rapidly. So I, they, they gave me quite a lot of interesting projects to work on. Yeah. And she was like one a real client. In one of my books, which I got really from her, if mm. you're early in your career, is find a boss that you can learn from. Yeah, yeah. Because that's something that is hugely valuable, I've found, in, yeah. in my life. Such good advice. Um, and then you also um, spent some time in Soviet-occupied Afghanistan and Bangladesh and Pakistan working for a couple of charity organizations, right? Yeah, that was back in the 1980s as well. Um, I did, yeah, and that was very educational too. So I, I worked in Pakistan, Bangladesh, and Afghanistan. Um, and I worked in situations that I, I wouldn't want my children to go into now, I suppose. Mm, they, right. They, yeah. it, they were, some of them are pretty dangerous. Yeah. But um, I, I was with people who, who moved me incredibly through their sort of courage and, and, and through their resilience. And I learned a lot from them, really, because these these were people who were really struggling, whether it was because their country had been invaded or because you know they were living in great poverty in Bangladesh. Yeah, who, who persevered and had huge dignity, and I, I learned a lot from them too. Yeah, and so your dad set up Reed in uh, was it nineteen sixty? Nineteen sixty. Yeah, that's right. Yeah. Um, and then so you had all these other career experiences. Was that a deliberate thing to not go straight into working in the family business? Because he very much set it up as a family business. Well, he set it up as a business. I, I suppose 
it wasn't obvious or clear at that point whether it become a family business, right. okay. whether it would be another generation or next or more. Um, and he'd been successful and he was a dynamic entrepreneur. He still works in the business. He's he, he's now eighty six and still right. works. Yeah. So he's had a he's had he started work at sixteen. So he's had a seventy year career so far, and he's still full of ideas and energy, which is good to see. Um, so he's been an inspiration, really. But he. Um, I wanted to do my own thing, and I thought I did think that you know, he he was always excited about the work that he was doing and and the business that he was building, and I, and and I shared that excitement really because I could see it for myself. Yeah, well, I saw my father was obviously doing work that he greatly enjoyed, and he was um, you know I'd often go with him to work or help out in the office or the shop and, and things like that, and so I, I I shared his enthusiasm for the company, but I wasn't sure that I. I would join him or indeed I'd be any good at the work so I wanted to do I wanted to do things in my own right first partly for my own confidence and for my own self-esteem and partly because I was interested in them which is why I work for the for the Roddicks and and why I work for those charities in Asia so so I joined my father when I was 30 years old and I think if, if, if if People are considering joining a family business. It's good to do things in your own right first because you learn a lot and you see other companies and other organizations and, and you get, I think, valuable experience. So I would encourage people to do that. And, and I've been in the company ever since. So I, I'm delighted I made the move. I mean, he was he, he, he was sort of encouraging me to join him and I was sitting on the fence for a while. I probably right. sat on the fence for too long, really. And what was the what was the moment where that shifted for you well I, I mean I sat on the fence I think partly through fear of failure you know I didn't want to mess up this company mm. or, 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 or be a disappointment I suppose to him um, but what shifted it is I suppose I had at that point two young children I had a good job at the BBC um, but I just made a program at the BBC with a management guru called Tom Peters yeah I was going to ask you about that as well yeah, well, which was a quite quite a success. You know, we mm. we sold this. The BBC had a business at the time called BBC Enterprise, where they sold training videos and things. And we'd sold this. We'd re- made about a million pounds for the BBC, and 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 my colleague and I went back with a new idea for the next program, and they wouldn't increase our budget. And so I thought right. this is not a very commercial approach. And at that time, I suppose I was getting frustrated with that. And my father said, well, there's a job, you know, I think you might be interested in. If you're not interested in it, um, it's going to go in the Sunday Times next weekend. <laughs> <laughs> I think it actually did go in the Sunday Times by the time I got my application in. But um, so, yeah, so he sort of, um, he, he, he put an opportunity in front of me that was pretty yeah. interesting. And, and I'm really glad I joined him. Because, and, and one of the reasons I'm really glad I joined him is it's meant that we've spent a lot more time together, mm. intervening years, and I've enjoyed that um, relationship. Usually. Yeah. Does it mean, you know, so he still he still comes into work. Um, I also want to know, how, like, how is he dealing with, um, like, Zoom and all the technology and stuff at 86? Is yeah. he pretty, no, no. pretty tech savvy? <laughs> well, so I suppose couple of things here we have never ever worked in the same building ah and i think that's been a key to our success okay we never well we've never had a situation that where are you going why are you going early yeah right (laughs) which i think would be irritating for both so we've never worked in the same building right now he's on lockdown um and and i i I haven't seen him for quite a long time because yeah 
but except yeah. on 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 Zoom, he's better at FaceTime than Zoom. I would say um, <laughs> he seems to have got a handle on it. And to his credit, he's always been interested in new things. Yeah, right. I remember him learning email. He was one of the you know, as soon as it came out, really. So mm-hmm. he's always interested in exploring new things. So that's great. And actually, because he's at home and and he can't go out so much now, he's done a lot online. He's always looking online, and he brings a lot of experience to that. And often. Yeah has good suggestions for improving our online services. Yeah. One of the people I um, interviewed on Beyond Busy um, a couple of years ago is a guy called Chester Osborne who runs Darrenberg Winery in the McLaren Vale in Australia. Oh. And I sat in his uh, in his house um, on in the sort of Adelaide suburbs sort of talking about his family business, which is like third generation, very well-known um, winery there. And it was really interesting, like his whole philosophy was was about responsibility so it's like i'm nurturing this thing i've been passed it by my dad i'm going to pass it to my kids i want to try and make my mark on it but you know really it's about sort of nurturing and 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 sort of looking after this this asset and it sort of struck me that there's like there's a sort of extra layer of responsibility um you know when you get when you get handed a company like that and it and it's seen as a family company like do is that something that you feel and how do you how do you navigate some of the relationships around that well, hopefully, you know, in the time that I've been running the company, you know, it's grown and changed and evolved a lot. And, and we've built a, 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 a more extensive and different business, really, yeah. to, the, to the one that we started with, which is still there, the core sort of employment agency business is still very much at the core. Um, and I don't know, Nick, you know, I have six children. Uh, and part of my reasoning for doing that was that maybe one of them might join me, but they haven't yet. <laughs> Well, my daughter had, but then she she's just recently had a baby, which is fantastic. So yeah. I'm hoping she'll come back, um, and um, we'll see how it goes. But um, it which side of thirty time. are they though? Are they are they you know? Well, well she, she's time. she's soon to be twenty nine. Well, she's soon to be twenty nine. So yeah. So um, I think it's um, time for them to think about it. <laughs> so mm. maybe I need to come up with a job offer that might go in the Sunday Times if they don't. So so I think it's time for. That. But the good thing about family companies is you, if, if you manage that transition successfully, you actually have a very young new leadership. Yeah. You know, the next yeah. generation, by definition, is going to be 30 years younger than the previous one, which is different to mm-hmm. other companies. Yeah. You know, I was in my 30s when I became the chief executive, 34, I think, which was, was pretty young. Yeah. Um, and, and so I think that's, um, that's a positive of that. But it, it's, it's not... Fate accompli, is it? <laughs> How's that mm. going to work? I think it's important that it's right for the individual and it's right for the organisation. It's got to be right for both. So we'll did see you, how that goes. Did you have any sense of kind of imposter syndrome with, you know, that whole narrative of, oh, well, he's only here because he's the son of the boss and, you know, like, did, yeah, was that a time. worry when you were, when you were <laughs> first joining? Uh, no, I think the imposter syndrome thing is really interesting because, yeah, all the time, you, I think uh, a lot of people feel that. And, mm. and, and I suppose you're walking into a situation like that, if you're in a family business, you have, I mean, the way you have to deal with that is you have to work harder than anyone else. Yeah. And, and, and you have to make sure that your contribution is significant. Otherwise, you're, people are always going to ask me, you know, why is he around? What's he, what's he doing? Yeah. So I think you, you, you have to step up to another level. I, I, I went to the um, Royal Marines in Limston in Devon a few years ago. A friend of mine, 
won some charity event and we went and we could do some of their training. Oh, right. <laughs> it's pretty grueling. But what really impressed me about the Royal Marines as a military unit, if you want to be an officer in the Royal Marines, you have to do every exercise that the regular Marine does, only faster. Oh. And I thought that was quite a good, that's quite yeah. a good message for anyone in management, really. You know, mm. you, you have to run the, the, the long distance run half an hour quicker. You have wow. to complete the yomp over the Dartmoor an hour or two quicker, you know. So I think that was, that, that was a good sort of message for me. And I, and I think that, but this imposter syndrome, I mean, why, why does one person deserve success and another doesn't enjoy it? I mean, there's a lot of luck involved in life, isn't there? Yeah, yeah, for sure. Um, and you've done quite a few um, different things over the, the years that have been um, either kind of social or charitable, whatever you want to call it. So um, tell us about Keep Britain Working. I was really interested to read that you decided to decline your salary through um, COVID. So I'd love to just hear more about that whole campaign. Yeah, Keep Keep Britain Working is a campaign we we initiated um, originally back in the financial crisis in 2008-9. And when the pandemic engulfed us, I thought it was good to relaunch it, really. And we had other companies that wanted to do that. And the the purpose of it was really to try and support people and companies in, in maintaining their livelihoods and jobs. So, so. I thought that it was appropriate. I mean, I know as an employer that you know there's a big differential between the highest paid and and, and people in entry level jobs. Yeah, and and if the highest paid were able to take a pay cut for a period of time or no pay, even better, it could save a lot of jobs because you know that the, you know they're often saying you know the CEO shouldn't have a multiple of more than X or Y, and they often do. Yeah. So if the CEO was able to lead by example, and others would follow. It would save a lot of jobs, and and, that, and we encouraged that, and other people did that, and I think that in the circumstances it was the right thing to do, and then obviously the government came in with the furlough scheme, which was huge in terms of saving jobs, and I, I just hope that you know that those people who are furloughed can successfully get back into work when it yeah. comes to an end. But the the Key Britain working campaign now. It's very much focused on supporting individuals whether they're looking to transition or have lost their jobs, and we've got we've got a lot of material on the website that um, is helpful to them you know, in terms of um, advice and, and, and ideas. So, you know, if, if someone is listening in that situation, I, I suggest they have a look. Yeah, and you raise a lot of money for Grenfell as well after the Grenfell fire. Yeah, well, Grenfell is just over there, just behind me, which right. we live and and. Um, you know, that was deeply shocking to everyone, obviously in the whole country, but particularly in this neighbourhood. And yeah. we just wanted to do what we could to help the families affected by that. And um, we have a charity called The Big Give, which is a match funding platform that was uh, originally an idea of my father's that we've developed over the years. And so the way it works is if you put money in or get or get foundations of philanthropists to put money in, then the public donations will be matched. So you, your money's doubled yeah they're coming in so we raised i think it was 2.4 million for the families through the big give wow in that year and we've we've been expanding the big give ever since so last christmas we raised just over 20 million for i think 700 charities wow through the big give so the match funding idea is a good one it's another example of an idea because 
it, it, when there's a match involved, more people give and people give more. <laughs> so yeah. it's, it's exciting. You know, if you give £100, it gets matched up to 200 then you get the gift aid going in, it's 240 and suddenly you've made a bigger impact. So, you know, it's a, it's, it's a good good idea that is really gaining leverage and, and, and I hope we can take it a lot further. We want to raise a billion pounds for good causes. We've got up to 156 million so far. Yeah. So we've got a way to go. <laughs> well, I think I need to... I think I need to thank you for the big gift because I used to be chair of a charity called Read International that was R-E-A-D, it should be said, oh. um, Read International that uh, recycled books from UK schools into Tanzania. Oh, what a good and, idea. Um, we used, yeah, we used the big give match funding thing a few years ago with some of our, uh, you know, sort of public donors and so on. And um, I think one of the things about it is that there's like the the year we did it, certainly anyway, there was like a deadline. You have to get it in before this particular deadline. And so that just kind of rallies the troops to, you know, to sort oh, of definitely, uh, yeah, there's get a, there's, donations have a, by a certain date kind of thing. Yeah, yeah. the Christmas challenge lasts for a yeah. week and, and the, the matches are only available that week. So what we want for the Big Give is more charities. So if, if people, you know, have charities they want to get support for, send them our way. Yeah. And we want more champions, these big donors who will put money in the match funding pot. And the great thing is, if you want to be a champion, you can support the environment or children or developing countries. So you can choose your subject, if you like. And they're really, really engaged by it because the way we've set it up is that their money is multiplied fivefold. So, you know, if you put in 100,000, then we get the charities that are participating in that particular stream of campaign to find big donors to match that. And then the public match it and then the gift aid. So, you know, big donors find it very satisfying. So I like to call it a generosity multiplier. Mm. So no, we, we just want more, we want this to have the snowball effect as well, you know, more, yeah. more people get involved. Yeah. Um, one of the things I also read about you is that you have a bit of a reputation for just getting things done. Like if you see um, something that needs to happen in the world, like, I mean, Grenfell being a really good example, it's like, let's get out there and do something about this. We see there's, you know, a gap here or an injustice here or a problem here, like let's try and solve it. Um, where do you think that comes from and what are your your secrets to productivity? Yeah, I, I like to get things done, but I, 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 I have a deep-seated dissatisfaction, I suppose, or frustration, I think it might be. So if you see something that, you know, a problem that you think should be addressed, do something. Uh, but there was some phrase I read a little while ago, you know, someone ought to do something and then, Oh, I am someone. <laughs> yeah, yeah, yeah. Yeah. So why don't you know, whenever we see anything that we think someone ought to do something, we'll start with oneself. Mm. So I think that's sort of and, and and for me it's yeah, sometimes it's injustice or, or, or just sort of just the sense of unfairness really when when you see things because I think we always we, we understand unfair. You you can also always sort of identify that something is unfair, can't you? It's harder to sort of it's hard to explain necessarily, but I think if you see unfairness, um, what can we do to fix it or help alleviate it at least? Mm-hmm. And, and in business, I, I, I find it hard because I'm always dissatisfied, you know, as a customer. <laughs> so, uh, you know, how could, how could this experience be better? And, yeah. and it, it always can be, really. You can always improve on things. So that sort of spirit of trying to think of a better way of doing things. So part of it's sort of emotional and part of it's intellectual. Uh, you know, is there a better way of doing it? Can we improve? Um, it's driven a bit by both head and heart, I think. Yeah. Um, do you have any secrets to 
how to get projects off the ground or how to make ideas happen? Well, the most important thing is find great people to work with. Mm. And I would say that, wouldn't I, as a recruiter? But (laughs) it really is true, which is part of the reason I love my job, because I feel we can really make a difference. I went to visit a client before everything got locked down, and he said, he said, you know, the woman attending the meeting with me had been his account manager, and he, he said that she had transformed his business through the work mm-hmm. she did recruiting people. And, 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 you know, one change in the right place or seat can make a huge difference. So yeah. finding the right people and then letting, letting them get on with it, I think is a really key to, to, to getting things done because you have to be able to move on to the next thing. I mean, if you have yeah. to do it yourself, you're not going to get as much done as if you can find someone good to help you or several people and then move on to the next problem or challenge or opportunity. So it's all about people in the end. Yeah. And also just like inspiring other people to, you know, to want to put their energy into stuff, right? Like creating a movement or creating a really high performing team. Yeah. I mean, it's really important to be clear what you're trying to achieve as an objective. Yeah. You know, why are we doing this? What, what's our goal here? How can we... How can we make a difference in a material way? And and I think if you're clear about that, the rest starts to fall into place because you know some people will be excited by that objective in some way, but the ones that are will come in your direction. Yeah. And, and and you can then start building a good team. I remember though years ago doing one of those Myers Briggs tests where you get all the, the, the four letters that describe your character type. Yeah. It was embarrassing because everyone in our team had the same. <laughs> oh, interesting. <laughs> So I've learned from that that I, I need to ensure that, that more sort of uh, personality diversity. I mean, we have, uh, have uh, all sorts of diversity, obviously, now, but I thought mm. that was that was troubling me, and it troubled me at the time that we, had the, you know, we were too similar in our readings on this psychometric test. And was that because it was you recruiting people in your own image, or was there something else going on? Well, that was what worried me. But, I mean, some of them had been there before, so maybe I was recruited because I was the same. I don't right. know. But I, you know, I've made made a conscious effort since then to make sure that if if, if we were to do that test again, we'd get a, a much broader range of yeah. Because I, yeah. I, I like to say a team is a genius, and and it's only a genius if people are bringing different experiences, perspectives, uh, and and ideas to the to the conversation. So diversity in the team is really important. That's the thing is it feels like um, that's often neglected in the really important conversation around diversity in general. Um, That's like the part of diversity that feels like it's completely neglected, right? Like um, diversity of personality styles, diversity of how people think like that. Yeah. Like diversity in terms of um, it, it uh, propelling a team forward um is as much about those personality styles as it is the other perspectives right yeah it's very i mean it's very enriching diversity so i mean we, in in read we we have a sort of inclusion and belonging we, we describe it because we want everyone to feel that they're part of the team part of the extension yeah. when they join the company but we also want to make sure that we have diverse experiences and outlooks and perspectives mm. we've just found over the years that that makes for a much better company and yeah and for sure much better decision making and, and much better you know, progress as, as, as an organization so yeah I'm, I'm a total believer in that yeah um final thing i just wanted to ask you about is um how you view happiness and success so are there are there kind of ways that you measure 
your own happiness are there goals that you still have in front of you that you want to achieve I'd just love to sort of hear your general outlook on how you motivate yourself and happiness and success well I'm lucky very lucky in that I have a job that I really love and and you know so our sort of brand message is love Mondays so I think it's really important to find work that you enjoy you know yeah you're going to be happy and and you know so much of our life is spent working or at work but that's key and and I think if you're unhappy in your work you should look to change and it might be changing within your company or role or or get another job because you don't have to be unhappy at work And, and I think it's possible for everyone to be happy in some form of work or other so I think that's 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 really important and it gets often overlooked and I think that another important part we talked about objectives and purposes having meaning in your work yeah you feel that you're contributing into your community to your colleagues to your society in a meaningful way and I think that makes you happy um that, that it's not sort of just going on holidays. I, I, I saw Greta Thunberg saying that you know, she didn't have to go to Thailand to be happy. She <laughs> was going on an aeroplane. I thought you're dead right. Of course yeah. you have to go to Thailand to be happy. And we, we sort of sold this a bit, aren't we? That, you know, you, should, you need another holiday or you need another product. So, so I don't think that's the case. And I think sort of some sense of fulfillment comes from your interactions with others be it through your business or maybe through a voluntary work we do or a charity or yeah. through your family and, and friends. And so I, I think that's where my, my happiness comes from. Um, yeah. I don't think there's anything wrong with being unhappy either for a bit, you know, this idea that, <laughs> happy yeah. because that can be a great motivator and, and, yeah. and it, because it can drive change. And, and, and I think that's, you know, it's not a constant state happiness, is it? I mean, in life, you, you if you look back, there are sort of episodes in life, there are chapters, if you like, of your life story, and you'll be happier in some than in others. And that that's not to be unexpected. I mean, that's normal. And I think so being able to live through periods of unhappiness and, and try and come back, you know, with, with, with a new chapter and, 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 and a new take on things is, is important too. Yeah, I, that feels like a perfect place to wrap this up. And I, I love that because it's like, I think we've, we've sort of wrongly got to the place of um, developing an expectation of being happy all the time. Right. And it's like, well, it's just by its nature. That's uh, that's really difficult to achieve. Um, do you want to just tell everyone where they can get hold of the book and anything else you want to just share with the beyond busy listeners and viewers before we finish? Yeah, no, well, thanks for listening to me all the way through to the end. Um, if you want to contact me, my email is james.reed, R-E-E-D at reed.com. Um, my books are on Amazon. That's the easiest place to find them. Um, and, you can flash uh, it up, James, as well. Yeah, here's, here's, here's the, uh, the one that's just been reissued with 10 bonus questions on the future of work. So we've, we've mm. incorporated some of the big changes recently. Um, so what was uh, you know, a pretty challenging year of 2020 some of the uh, questions relate to that in a way so um yeah so please take a look at the books they're they're there to enable your career and i hope they're helpful amazing well james thanks so much for being on beyond busy it's just been a good listen to your days to be honest it's a bit of pleasure talking to you so thank you very much it's nice to see you graham thank you for inviting me thank you
So there you go, James Reed. Hope you enjoyed that one. Uh, I really enjoyed recording that and spending time with James. Um, also getting some really nice feedback in on the Grace Marshall episode from a couple of weeks back. So if you haven't checked that one out, go and find it in your podcast feed. We'll put a link to that in the show notes as well. And the show notes and all the previous episodes and everything else to do with Beyond Busy is all at getbeyondbusy.com if you're going to go find out more there as well. Um, our sponsors, as ever, are Think Productive. Shout out to Jess, who's done a fantastic job with the new Think Productive website, broadening our offering from beyond just being about productivity and email and meetings and into a much wider offering uh, as well. So go and check out thinkproductive.com thinkproductive.co.uk if you're in the UK as well and um, the final thing I just want to say is a massive shout out to the NHS I had my first vaccine um, for COVID last week I had a weird uh, sort of one day later side effect of just feeling really cold for a couple of hours I felt like I had flu for like two hours and then it just went away again very strange Um, but the NHS process through the whole thing was just unbelievable. I don't think I stopped walking. You know, you just kind of walk in, walk to the next thing, answer some questions, walk to the next thing, give your numbers and all that stuff. And you just keep walking. And uh, suddenly I'm talking to a guy, sat down, I'm talking to a guy, uh, he's asking me about my, uh, the mask I was wearing, which was a Toronto Blue Jays mask. And pretty much by the time I'd said Blue Jays, he was like, yeah, you're done. Off you go. (laughs) And I just carried on walking again. So just a really slick operation. And it makes me feel very grateful for the nhs very grateful for science and what they have managed to do so quickly around covid and uh you know giving us optimism for the future and it just feels like we might be on our way out of this whole thing so i'm not gonna speak too soon but yeah touch wood it feels like there's a lot of good things rolling in the right direction and uh certainly i'm feeling personally very uh optimistic and in a in a better place than uh, I was this time last year, that's for sure. So um, shout out to the NHS and everyone doing amazing work in uh, obviously just dealing with this pandemic in so many different um, parts of the front line. So if that's you, thank you. And uh, we'll be back next week with another episode. We've got a really good one next week. We've got Reverend Chris Lee, who is the internet vicar. And he is going to be talking about his 60 second sermons and his internet fame um really interesting one next week so uh make sure you're subscribed and following beyond busy for that and we'll see you next week oh and one other thing if you follow this in audio form i would love you to just go and give us a like and a subscribe on youtube even if you're not going to watch it on youtube i know uh, but we're just trying to convince the youtube algorithm that we're worth people's attention and worth following we want to get the word out there more about beyond busy so just go to youtube uh, the channel is just Graham Walcott. And then if you can please just subscribe to that. Uh, if you uh, so wish, just leave a comment or uh, just a like on some of the videos. That would also really help. Just uh, help us trick the algorithm into uh, sharing Beyond Busy with more people. So if you could do that on YouTube, I'd be very, very grateful. And we'll see you next week. Enjoy the sunshine. Take care. Bye for now. Bye for now.